preaching of God's Word is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, and verses 15 through 17. Luke's Gospel, 18, 15 through 17. Here then, these three verses. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer, little children, to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. These three verses then. Remember that last week we had the same three verses before us and focused more on the first two of the three when Christ rebukes His own disciples who were keeping children, even infants, from being brought to Him. And with what gracious words he spoke, Suffer, allow, permit little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. And as we just read in Mark's Gospel, we saw that this was no mere sentimental thing, but rather he took them up in his arms and blessed them, pronounced great and weighty privileges unto them. And we saw, as we see again, Christ's willingness, and not only willingness by way of permission, but earnest desire that even the youngest of children should be brought unto Him for His blessing. Well, you'll notice that the text then transitions. And so, verse 17, Christ says, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Some who have written off the truth that even infants should be brought for blessings to Christ, have made these three verses to consist only in this message that, well, anyone who enters God's kingdom is to be like little children. And we speak not against the truth that verse 17 teaches that any who are to receive the kingdom of God, any who are to be saved, any who are, as the next verse testifies, are to inherit eternal must be like a little child. However, that truth is founded upon the truth preceding, that Christ willingly brings helpless infants to Himself and blesses them. That truth is the foundation and uh, uh, encouragement to what He then states in verse 17. Now, we should note from the beginning that nothing more promotes maturity among men than Christianity. The teaching of God's Word, when embraced by faith, will make the most mature children, young people, women, and men. This doesn't mean that all Christians are equally mature. Shamefully, it doesn't mean that Christians are always more mature than unbelievers. But what it does mean is that when the Word of God lodges in the heart of one and permeates their thoughts and desires and transforms their mind and their actions, you will find no greater specimen of maturity than such a one who relies upon and walks by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so when we take up this verse before us, there's no argument here for immaturity 
among Christians. In fact, immaturity is everywhere reproved. And so Paul, in various places, reproves Christians for acting beneath their privilege. Peter reproves those who should have grown. The book of Hebrews reproves those who now should be teachers and yet have need to be taught again the first principles of the oracles of God. And so we ought to secure in our minds very clearly the Bible nowhere permits immaturity among His people. There is a clear call that we should press on to grow, to advance, to mature. However, what this verse does teach us is that the only way of maturing, in fact, the only way of entering and beginning as a Christian, is by fully renouncing oneself and fully relying upon what God provides us in Christ Jesus. This is the basic meaning of what Christ says. Notice, verily I say unto you. It's a solemn word. I'm speaking truth. It's similar and like unto an oath. I'm telling you the truth. Pay attention. Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child. Now we saw in Mark's Gospel, receiving the kingdom of God is likened unto being saved. Who then can be saved if a rich man can hardly receive the kingdom of God? Who then can be saved? So this expression, receive the kingdom of God, is the same as saying being saved, being delivered from sin, guilt, punishment, wrath, condemnation. And you'll notice, just as in Mark's Gospel, the next verse introduces us to this Man who comes seeking, notice, eternal life. And notice, he comes requesting eternal life. And how does Christ express his thought? But again, in verse 24, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? So entering into the kingdom of God is the same as, quote, being saved, is the same as, quote, having eternal life. And he says the only way that one should ever enter in and begin to enjoy the benefit of eternal life is by receiving that life, that kingdom, that salvation as a little child. Now, we see in our world, of course, that there are men who act as children. And culturally, increasingly, the so-called age of adolescence, if there's any truth to that, has been grossly enlarged so that men in their 20s, 30s, and even 40s act as early teenagers in their choices of entertainment and activity, in their responsibility and work ethic, and the same is true of women and of a whole culture. You can look back, I mean, just as a simple anecdote to how people dressed 40 years ago in public to how people dress today. You can think of how people spoke 40 years ago in the presence of those who were their superiors to how they speak today. And there's everywhere the evidence that there is this immaturity that is pervading our society. So it might strike us as strange that Christ says, you have no eternal life. You cannot have eternal life except you first become as a little child. But the confusion that we might have 
is based upon this immaturity seen among men versus the thing that Christ is cultivating in His people. And so remember, the context helps us. Suffer what? Verse 16, little children to come to me. Who are these little children? Infants. What is an infant? An infant is one who has no ability of himself to do any such good thing. He cannot so much as walk. He cannot feed himself. He's entirely dependent upon another for everything that he or she has. And so each of us began our life as an infant in this world. And we could say, except someone begins life in this world as an infant, he cannot be a man. He cannot have life. The same is true spiritually. Except one first be as an infant, he cannot have spiritual life. And there's much bound up in that, of course. There's the truth of the new birth. At the beginning, the inception of the life of the Christian is taught to be a new birth. Except a man, Jesus says, be born again. Think of the language. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born from above by the water and spirit. He cannot enter into that kingdom. And so there is a new birth needed. There's also, notice this language, whosoever shall not receive. There's a sense in which there's some consciousness within that person receiving this kingdom. And in receiving it, he must be as this infant. He must be entirely dependent upon another, which truth in the passage before us with its context has the preeminent truth, uh, message. Namely that if ever we should enter into God's kingdom, it will be only as we receive entirely what is provided to us. We contribute nothing. Think of this for a moment. An infant, three days old. The mother doesn't say to the infant, you know what, if you sit up, then I'll nurse you. If you start showing me that you care for me, I'll nurse you. In fact, the child is screaming and pitching a fit and everything else, but the mother goes out of her way to care for and nurse the child. The child is fully dependent upon the mother. And similarly, all who would enter into the kingdom of heaven must be fully dependent upon Him who brings that kingdom unto us. So consider then, as we consider this passage, three things. Firstly, the kingdom which we are to receive. Secondly, the recipients of that kingdom. And thirdly, the only entrance, that is, those who enter into the kingdom. So firstly, then, the kingdom that is to be received. What is this kingdom of which Christ speaks? It may be difficult for us because in our own nation we have some vested interest against so-called kingdoms. And we have a president, of course. We have a congress. And we have a court system. And these three divide, in some sense, the powers of what would traditionally be held by a king. That's not always the case, but what we'll notice is that the kingdom that is to be received is a kingdom wherein God only is supreme. So notice, it is called, quite simply, as frequently it is elsewhere, 
the kingdom of God. It's not the kingdom of man. It's not the kingdom of, as it were, the church. It's not the kingdom of uh, yourself. It's not your own self-realization. It's not your sort of episode of an epiphany whereby you come to your own self-enlightenment and now have entered into something. It is the state of God's ruling. It is wherein He is acknowledged to be supreme and the only supreme and just and wise and powerful one. In other words, the kingdom that is to be received is God's kingdom. It's not your kingdom or my kingdom. It's not our kingdom together. It is God's kingdom. This tells us, of course, many things about that kingdom. It is a kingdom that is holy and good. It is a kingdom where righteousness prevails. It is a kingdom where peace is sure to stand uh, true and uh, stable. Because it's God's. And so it's not only speaking of that place or that realm, that dominion by which God rules. It does include that. But it's speaking of, as well, all that is entailed in that realm and dominion where God is the Lord. Where God rules and reigns all of those blessings that are attached to Him and flow from Him do reign as well. That's why, for instance, this one who is coming seeking eternal life is known by Christ to be asking a question about how do I enter into the kingdom of God? So we ought to see, of course, that this kingdom, being God's, is, of course, the kingdom where His law is supreme. There's no denying that. But in context, what we're seeing is the emphasis is upon the benefits of such a realm. You can think of this for a moment. We live in a nation riddled with all manner of sin and certainly those that are older and have experienced other things in preceding generations as children and young adults and so on can look and say, you know what, the economy shifted and all these problems are different and so on. However, however deplorable our own nation is with iniquity and sin and even economics and other such things, we cannot deny this, that there are earthly privileges afforded to us for being citizens of this nation versus citizen of another nation. We're not denying the benefits of other nations, but it's astounding that a person in this world who makes $30,000 can bemoan that when people who in other nations would make $30,000 would be the richest of the rich. It's astonishing that we should have complaints and grumbling when we can turn on the water faucet and pure water comes out that our children and we can drink when other people have to every day go down to the murky, muddy rivers, bucket out water, pour it out, perhaps boil it, do whatever else they need to in order to get even a cup of water. You see, it's not an exaggeration to say that by virtue of being a citizen of this nation, we are earthly-wise, in an earthly measurement, greatly privileged. Even the poorest in this nation has privileges afforded to them that other citizens of other nations have no hope ever of experiencing. Now, what's the point of this? Well, it's certainly not to say, hurrah, we're Americans. There are many problems in America that need the Lord's gracious intervention. It's simply to point out this truth. You had zero 
to do with your being an American citizen. Unless you transferred and took, as it were, the oath of citizenship and so on, your citizenship is as Paul's was of Rome. But I was freeborn. I am in this nation, in this society, in this civilization, merely because I was born here. And to you are given tremendous privileges by virtue of being a member of this nation that others who are members of different nations only dream of. Now what's the point? If that's true among the relatively different kingdoms of men, what superior blessedness must be for those who enter into the kingdom of God? So there are people, think of this, who risk their lives crossing a river south of the border, who get in the backs of tractor trailers and pay thousands of dollars for the off chance in their estimation that they might evade the border patrol and find, as it were, a job in this side in our nation and eke out a living and send money back. We don't commend it. We don't condone it. But you can understand their thought. It's better for me to risk this in an effort to eke out something better in this world by finding a job in the United States. Now, brethren, that's at best for a temporal improvement. How much greater is it to seek the kingdom of God? The kingdom where God's privileges are afforded to His people. The kingdom where God's overseeing care and providence is provided with great assurance to His people. The place where God rules and reigns and His laws are just. The place where God's promises are full of all that is ever required. We think of a whole system, however broken it may be, that it's true, poor people, poverty-stricken people have avenues afforded to them for food, finances, and housing. Our nation is imperfect. Many sins abound. And even in that system, there are abuses galore. But how much better is it to think of what provisions are given to those in God's kingdom? We see little whispers of it in various passages. But the point is, this kingdom is an all-sufficient kingdom of an all-sufficient God for all needs that His citizens and subjects ever shall have. So this kingdom that is to be received is the best. We can't say it greater or more simply. It is simply that which is the best. It's of the best good. It's of the best provision. It's of the best happiness. It's of the best of all that is to be enjoyed both in this life and for eternity. So you think of a 30-year-old who seeks to join lawfully as a citizen of this nation. What is their benefit? It's a benefit that may last for another 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And then their life joins the life of everyone else in this world. They die, perish, their bodies are buried, and whatever earthly benefits they enjoyed as a citizen of this nation are now fully done away. There's nothing more to enjoy. But the citizen of God's kingdom has benefits in this life, 
even as Mark's Gospel told us, those who forsake family, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, and lands and possessions and inheritance shall in this life gain a hundredfold more with persecution, but in the life to come, eternal life. You see, the point is this kingdom is no mere temporary state of blessedness. It is an everlasting state of blessedness, an increasing state of blessedness. It doesn't take long for citizens of the United States to realize that there are many problems in our nation. But it will never be the case that a citizen of the kingdom of God shall discover a problem with the fabric of his kingdom. It is that kingdom which was cast off in the garden. If you want a picture of God's kingdom, look at the garden before Adam's sin. There, God provides a a bounty of everything. And there, Adam holds fellowship with God. So soon as sin enters in, Adam is aware of his guilt and his shame and he flees from God. There it is. The kingdom is cast off. And it's cast off by whom? It's cast off by man. It's cast off by the creature. It's cast off by sin. And so this kingdom which is to be received is that glorious and blessed state of being governed by, ruled by, provided by God Himself, enjoying His fellowship. And if that's to be the kingdom that we receive, which was cast off by us, it must be brought to us by the King whom we rejected. Think for a moment, we don't have time to develop this thought, who is it that's speaking these words? It's the king of that kingdom. And he's appealing to us to consider well this kingdom which he heralds. So this kingdom that is to be received as God's kingdom, that kingdom of perfect blessedness that extends not only through the duration of this life, providing all that is needed for his uh, uh, subjects, but providing as well himself to them, who's providing his life to them, who's providing His blessedness to them for this life and the life to come. Before we pass on, you can see this. There is no greater kingdom to seek. This is why someone in a third world country with all of the uh, impoverished state that they suffer, if they are but citizens of this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, they enjoy the privileges that exceed the best life in this world because they have the life of God as their life. And if we who inhabit a more privileged state do not have Christ as our King and do not have His kingdom as our identity, whatever outward blessings, comforts, and privileges we have, we lack the greatest. We lack the best. Well, if such a kingdom is... Exceeding great. Secondly, who are the recipients of this kingdom? You notice that Christ says, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. And so, in other words, the universal identity of all who enter that kingdom is that they, in a very important way, resemble little children. We've touched on this already, but it's worth our attention. 
this notion of a little child brings to us this understanding that they are entirely dependent. And so one thing we can say about the recipients of this kingdom is that they are consciously in need of receiving all that God provides. Think of it this way for a moment. A little child, when the mother comes or the father comes in the early moments of the day, doesn't say to their mom or dad, you know, I'd rather not wear that outfit today. I'd rather not be moved to that place today. I'd rather not have this experience today. The child is fully dependent on the will of his father or mother. And the same, in essence, is true of the one who would enter God's kingdom. They do not, as Luke 14 reminds us, exalt themselves. They humble themselves. They do not, as we read in Jeremiah 17, put their trust in the arm of flesh, in man. They put their trust in the Lord. And by that trust, they are blessed. And so one thing we can say is that the recipients are those who receive what God gives. Notice the language even. Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God. They are in the posture of receiving. They're not in the posture of providing. So you think of the intimate reality of a mother nursing her child. She doesn't then say, okay, it's your turn to feed me. The child is fully dependent upon the mother's care, the mother's providing of nourishment. And the same is true of the spiritual need of life. We come saying, Oh God, every blessing that I would ever enjoy must come from You. I don't come to provide You something. I don't come to say, here's my payment that I can now enter in. I come saying, I need You to give it to me. This is not just true of little children literally in those terms, but it's true of older men and women. And in context, this is the point of this next narrative, this certain ruler. So it's a man, it's a man of prominence, a man of high respect, a man of great authority, a man of great morality, a man of great religion. And yet, he's shown to be, however dignified, however otherwisely mature, he's shown to be not as a little child. And one key feature, as we'll see, is because he's reliant upon himself. What good thing must I do? That's not the voice of a little child. That's the voice of a proud man. That's not the voice of one who is dependent and wanting to receive all that is given. That's one who says, what's the cost? I'll pay it. And so many people would, as it were, by their own works, purchase entrance into heaven. Think of this for a moment. What mother would ever say to their little child, pay up and then I'll feed you? It's not that way at all. The mother goes out of her way with much distresses upon herself, her body, her mind, and so on, and she cares for and feeds her children. And what is true in an earthly realm is true in the heavenly realm that we must be those who consciously come not giving in order to enter, but receiving in order to enter. Think of it this way. There are things in this world 
wherein one must have a ticket purchased in order to enjoy the benefit. If you have to travel and fly on an airplane, you don't just show up at the gate and say, well, I'd like to fly, you know, what are you going to give me? You have to have your ticket previously paid for, whether that's by money or by miles or whatever else. It has to be paid for. If you want to go into a certain festival, you have to have a ticket that's been paid for. These things require evidence that you've made the payment requisite to the entering in and enjoying the benefit of whatever it is you're seeking. But the astounding thing is, the greatest blessing ever to be enjoyed among the children of men has for its admission this requirement only. Receive fully what I give you. I take no payment from you. So if we are to receive this kingdom, we must receive it by receiving all that He provides without ourselves providing Him anything. It's astounding. Christ would have none of this man's money that comes to Him. He doesn't think, well, yeah, you know what would be good? This will make us be able to be doing a lot of things. He says, go and sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and then follow Me. Rely strictly, solely, fundamentally, fully upon Me. This is true for us today. In other words, there must be a renouncing of all personal attainments and purchase. We don't come to God in our sort of bartering with Him. In our culture, it's not customary to barter and bargain. We don't go to a shopping market and find that the apples are $1.50 per pound, get a bag and go up to the one who checks us out and says, I see that you're selling these for $1.50. I'd like for you to take this offer of $1.20. They say, you know what, you can go put these apples back. That's not how we operate here. But in many other cultures, there's a bartering system. Here's a price, and it's sort of understood that there's going to be a bartering and bargaining that goes on now. Well, whatever our culture is, in the highest thing, it's customary for men to bargain with God. It's customary for people of America to become convinced of their sin and take up the words of this certain ruler and say, Good Master, what must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? You tell me the cost, I'll put the payment forward. You tell me what to do, I'll do it, and I'll earn then this entrance into so great a kingdom. And we have to admit, it somewhat makes sense. Because there's no greater kingdom, no greater blessedness, no greater enjoyment than having this everlasting life and salvation that is offered in Christ. But the truth is, God will never accept anyone by way of their works. He has renounced that way. And if we are to be as little children, we must come fully renouncing not just our sins as we esteem them, but even our so-called good works because we see them to be faulty themselves. You know, you could think of a child astounded by some sports car they see in a parking lot. And they see this, it's perfectly polished and everything is as it should be. This multi-hundred-thousand-dollar vehicle before them. And they go to the owner and say, tell me how much it costs and I'll pay up. 
And they reach in their pocket with their handful of change and they say, here's everything I got, I'll give you everything that I have. The owner of the car is going to say, you know what, I understand, I get it, but you can't possibly have enough money to buy this. Brethren, we stand often as that little child before the kingdom of God. And we say, tell me how much, I'll give it. But in truth, God would look at us and say, are you kidding me? There is nothing, there is no amount of work, there is no amount of effort, there is no amount of religion, there is no amount of self-renouncing, there is no amount of pain, penance, nothing you can do can ever meet the cost of what is demanded to enter into this kingdom. This is why, in one sense, among many others, the false religion of Roman Catholicism is full of abundant heretical, damnable error. Why? Because embedded in their religion is this thought that if I do something, God will be pleased and bless me with entrance into His kingdom and the enlargement of these other things as well. So you know, I have to go and I have to make uh, this oral confession to a priest. And then the priest will say, you know what, your sins are forgiven, but the temporal punishments aren't. And so in order to work up days of purgatory, go and say these Hail Marys, go and play this game, go and do these things, and then, look, you'll enter into God's kingdom. You'll evade further flames of purgatory, you'll enter into heaven. Brethren, at first glance, the student of the Scripture sees that is fundamentally flawed. And whereas it angers our souls that there are wicked men who bear the name reverend, who teach these abominable, damnable heresies, it should burden our souls that there are souls bound up in this damnable, inexcusable representation of Christianity. But we set that aside and say, it's the same thing when a consistent Protestant comes and says, okay, God, The kingdom of God is great. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to train my children more. I'm going to be more faithful as a wife. I'm going to be more faithful as a husband. I'm going to go to church. Whenever that door's open, I'm going to be there. Whenever there's a time of fellowship, I'm going to be there. Whatever book I'm supposed to read, I'm going to read it. Because when I do those things, I know then that I'll enter into God's kingdom. Children, you have this as your temptation. Because to you has been given the privilege of greater accuracy and doctrinal faithfulness, greater understanding of what God indeed says is right and wrong. But your temptation will most certainly be to say, because I'm doing these things, therefore I may enter in, I will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But here Christ says the only recipient is the one who renounces all that He would do and receive all that I have done, and rest solely upon Me. What does the infant do but cry? And then the mother goes about and does everything she can to comfort. There's the picture of one entering God's kingdom. We bemoan our miseries. We sorrow over our sins. And we cry out, Lord, save me! And then it's the Lord who comes to us and brings us into His kingdom. In other words, the recipients are those who call out all of their needs and cares and sins and guilt 
and cast them, every single one, upon the Lord for His salvation. Notice then, lastly, the only entrance in. The only ones who enter in to this kingdom. It's true and clear in the second point. Those who are as children. But notice how emphatic Christ is. Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Christ is trying to emphasize this point because, as elsewhere stated, He knows what is in man. He knows man will hear this and say, yep, I got it. And then they'll seek to go and do something, not as a little child receiving, but as one contributing and purchasing. And so Christ is sealing off, as it were. He's setting a clear marker saying, this way shall never lead to the kingdom of heaven. It's only this way. The way, in other words, is exclusive. Now, of course, as soon as you use the word exclusive, the world loses its mind. The world today says, what are you talking about? Something's exclusive. You know, the best word is inclusive, right? And so we're to be inclusive in all of our thoughts. And how could a man possibly be a pastor? Because, well, women need a woman pastor. And all of a sudden, this stuff gets out of control because they've lost their mind over these things. And then when Christ says, there is no other way of entering into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven but this, then the world scoffs and says, well, that seems outdated. That's a bit archaic, isn't it? You know, that belongs to the unenlightened years of those you know, forefathers who didn't understand society as we now understand it. And what you see is the grand display of no one acting as a dependent child. It's the very display of the contradiction of what Christ is commending. Because we know this in little children. If they are to survive, they must be provided for by their parents. Now, if you had a child, and oh, the pain for nursing mothers when this happens, who will not be nursed, there's great pains taken. How do we get the food then to this child? Right? Because they realize if this child doesn't eat, this child doesn't live. And so there's all sorts of things that go into it. Or if as the child grows, they have issues and stomach and perhaps allergic issues to certain foods. All sorts of care given because the child, if to live, must receive what is provided to them. No one says at that point, well, that seems a little bit wrong that you're saying this child can't have peanuts because they have a peanut allergy. The world says, no, this child has a peanut allergy. We better avoid peanuts. The world gets it on such trivial things. We don't mean that earthly life is trivial, but we mean earthly things compared to eternal things. And Christ says, this way won't work. If you go this way, you'll die. Could you imagine the parent today? How the news would have a feast If a parent got on the news and said, I know my child has a peanut allergy, but I'm stocking up on peanut butter and I'm going to feed it to him regardless, they would be instantly lambasted because they aren't understanding that that way leads to death. Christ is making this point with great emphasis. The way of self-reliance 
though highly commended by proud and arrogant men of every generation, is the way that leads to death. And if you sit here this morning, relying upon yourself, your decisions, your wisdom, your works, your actions, your prayers, your attendance, all of these things, you are on the way that leads to death. Period. The exclusion is not only clear, the exclusion is good. Because what he's saying is this, your works will never amass to such an amount as to be able to pay the purchase price of entrance into my kingdom. But here's the good news. The kingdom is received. It is given. I'm holding it forth to you saying, here is the kingdom. I've made purchase of it. I bring it to you. I say, receive it. In other words, the king has done all. The king offers all. And those who enter in are those who enter in solely by the merit and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see more of this in the following passage. We come now to conclude and to note something. For a moment, if you stand in the kingdom of heaven as a true and loyal subject of that great king, you do so not because of your preeminent wisdom or superior wisdom relative to others. You do so because Christ has brought it to you and brought you to receive the same. And so you have great cause, not only of enjoying the privileges which are yours in that kingdom, ever giving glory and thanks to Christ. In this life, we're told that salvation is not of works. Notice the language. Lest any man should boast. Can you imagine if infants could speak and say something like they're meeting together, they're in the crib together, and an infant were expressing his thoughts and say, you know what? I've done so much to live. I've done so much to survive. Well, I've done a lot more, you know, and all these things. You know, if you overheard that kind of expression, you'd be saying, you know, what are you talking about? You're fully dependent. Your very conception is outside of your power. You're being carried in the womb is outside of your power. You're being brought into this world is outside of your power. Your receiving of nourishment is outside of your power. Everything has been given to you. None could boast. But brethren, go to the eternal realm, the heavenly realm, the kingdom of God. Who in the kingdom of God can say, well, you know, in my day there was a lot of problems and sin and corruption and the religions even of the world were so overrunning the true and pure truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I saw through it. My eyes were keen and more keen than others. I indeed was wiser than others, and that's why I'm here. You don't find that kind of voice in heaven because the voices in heaven all realize that the only reason they are enjoying the privileges of that kingdom is because Christ has given them all and they were brought to receive the same of His mysterious and gracious and true working of salvation. So it should be today. Christians in this life should be preeminent in praise. I live because of Christ. I have eternal life because of Christ. My sins are 
forgiven because of Christ. I'm growing in holiness because of Christ. Everything that I have of the kingdom of God has been given freely to me. And so all that I have, I have received graciously. See how this instantly destroys all pride among Christians. We don't then look and say, well, you know, I'm in a better position because of me. Because even if we could say, well, I've been more diligent in reading and prayer and attendance at this means of grace and so on, we have to back up and say, that's because God has given that. God has worked in me. You know, a child, for instance, who is a bit neglected by his mother versus a child who is more particularly cared for by his mother is not in a worse position and this other in a better position because of themselves. It's because of the mother. And when it is that we stand in a fuller position of health and maturity, we cannot ascribe it to ourselves. We must give all the praise to the Lord Himself. Brethren, if in our midst there are those who stand apart from the kingdom, here is a clear warning. If you shall ever receive this kingdom, it will only be as you clearly renounce all of yourself and take all from Christ. What you have to renounce is utterly worthless in this day. Could you imagine, for instance, someone digging up a treasure in the woods and find that it's all Confederate money? There they have hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, but they're all Confederate dollars. And they go to the bank and say, well, you know, this is mine. It was in my property, lawfully owned. I dug it up. I opened it up. Here, I'd like to deposit all of my money. The bank would stand back and say, well, that might be a museum piece, but it has no legal ability to have money for you because that's of a government that is no longer in existence and was never recognized by this nation and so on. The point is, if we bring all of our works to the Lord and say, here's what I've done, now bless me. He says, it's all worthless. None of that will avail to cause you any blessing in my kingdom. Worse than that, all is punishable by the king. Because it's all marked by defect and rebellion. Moreover, all that Christ holds forth is perfect. And to seek to ignore that and rely upon our works is only a further display of our rebelling against the King. He comes and says, all that I've done, take it. All my righteousness, take me. I am the Savior. And we say, you know, I'll take some of you, but I'd like to sort of add this extra deposit of my own works. What is that but flagrant rebellion against the King who says, receive what I do as for you. So for those who stand outside of Christ, here is the bad news. Nothing that you do shall ever gain you entrance into the kingdom. In fact, all that you do shall only build up the cause of your condemnation. But here's the good news. The way of entering the kingdom is by renouncing all that you've done 
and receiving all that Christ is and saying, I take Him and only Him to be my Savior. And those who do so enter in to the kingdom of God. Those who do so inherit eternal life. Those who do so are saved to the glory of Christ, the Savior of sinners. Would you stand with me?